0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML. Hey,
1: it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine bucking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. The Toronto Maple Leafs win big last night in overtime. What is next? World peace? Here's Scott
2: Thompson! Uh, good afternoon, it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton today, playing the Honeymoon Suite, Stay in the Light. And you're going, I know, what? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? What a great song out of uh, a band from Niagara Falls, Ontario. Here is a little bit of history. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and if there's anyone out there listening who wants to correct me, feel free. Uh, honeymoon Suite, obviously from Niagara Falls, way back in the day, entered a Battle of the Bands uh, competition on our brother station, q 107 in toronto and they won and with that win uh i think came a whole pile of equipment uh some studio time and and what have you and the rest is history as they say and why are we playing the honeymoon suite because jen mcqueen's in the newsroom and it's an earworm that's just been going in and out of her noggin uh you know for a while and now it's infected the whole newsroom and now it's infected all the listening area as well there you go you'll be singing it all afternoon and why not it's a nice little ditty it's easy to dance to all right uh feel free to jump into the fun i'd love to hear from you send us a note scott thompson at 900 chml.com all right where are we <gasps> Leafs come back win in overtime are you kidding me pinch me spank me do anything i just can't believe it give my head a shake is it true am i dreaming and now lead the series three to one. Uh, and, uh, yeah, lots of screaming and yelling in the Thompson household last night. It was uh, pretty good. All right. Day seven of the uh, federal employee strike. Can you tell? I mean, unless you're getting a passport. And, you know, we've been in passport hell for the last year and a half. So, really, is there any difference you feel? You know, you've gone a week without anything. Uh, they've increased the size of the public service, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has increased the size of the federal service by about 30%, over 30% since his tenure. And that's roughly the amount of people that are on strike. About 30% of these civil services on strike right now. Are you noticing any difference? What are we paying for? Um, anyway, uh, we'll talk about that coming up uh, moments from now. Uh, Canada trying to get more uh, Canadians out of Sudan, and depending on our allies to do so, whether it's the European Union or the usa um i guess about a hundred have left so far out of about the 1700 that are still there locally uh some pretty <laughs> some pretty incredible news i don't know uh school board votes to the hamilton district went with school board voted to uh remove the names from schools i don't know i, I teach uh, don't cancel uh, I think this is kind of uh, cowardly, it's, uh, it's void of debate, it's dictatorial, uh, you know, it's just it's an easy way out. And it's not teaching anything, teach, 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 explain, offer both sides of the story, both representation, don't just cover it up and pretend that it never happened. My goodness, where would Europe be if they did that? All right, uh, what else we got? Oh, um, is anyone else tired of the NDP and Jagmeet Singh playing both sides of the fence and really doing nothing? Like, let's be serious. He is propping up this NDP liberal government and just sits on the sidelines and starts pointing his finger at the guy who he is supporting uh, and has the ability to change it all. But he knows this is the most power he will probably be exposed to and I guess not confident enough that his party... And he can beat the prime minister. So he's playing both sides of the fence. Here's what Jagmeet said uh, Singh had to say on the lost confidence of the federal employees who've been on the pick line for seven days now.
3: These workers have lost confidence in Minister Forchi. They're saying the minister is not there present, is not being active on this file. It's taken two years. This is not a, a recent problem. It's been two years in the making. The government has not negotiated a good
2: contract in two years. You are the government, Mr. Singh. You are the government. I know you can hide behind Justin in his fancy socks all you want, but we see you back there, and you're the one propping up this government. You are in power as much as he is. So why don't you act like it? Uh, Here's what he had to say about supporting workers. These are hardworking people. Their demand is very simple and very reasonable.
3: They're saying that their salaries should match inflation, should follow inflation. And it's frankly something that I want for all workers across this country. Why is it that workers should accept less than salaries that keep up with inflation? If they don't keep up with inflation, they're actually getting a pay cut. And
2: that's wrong. So we and absolutely support these workers. As, are, uh, as is the situation for the majority of Canadians. I don't think there's many Canadians who are getting a raise that is keeping up with inflation. Is there anybody out there? Anybody that's getting a raise that keeps up with inflation? So I guess as, having, as well as having the best benefits in the world, you got to keep up to inflation. That's not behind Canadian workers. That's ahead of Canadian workers. And then as, as his party is part of the ruling government, it's the NDP Liberal Party, they've got the coalition, the agreement, whatever the heck it is, he's asking where the prime minister is. Some are saying, where is meat Singh?
3: One of the biggest strikes in our in our country's history, and where is the Prime Minister? Prime Minister should be taking this seriously and personally. These are the workers that work for the Prime Minister, they work for the government. The Prime Minister often talks about the importance of workers. Well, where is he then? If he thinks this is important, he thinks workers are serious, he takes workers seriously, he should be showing up, taking this matter seriously, getting personally involved and finding a solution. And that means negotiating a good contract that respects these workers. People are frustrated, and we need to see a resolution of this quickly.
2: How are you getting personally involved other than sitting on the center of the fence and yelling at both sides? You are the government, Mr. Singh. You are responsible for keeping this government in power. You are 50% of this government after the deal that you made with the liberals. What are you doing to convince the prime minister? What are you doing to tell the prime minister? What are you doing to influence the government? They work for you, too, Mr. Singh, not just the prime minister. You are part of this government. And if you want to be entirely in charge of the government, then you call your election. Because I think by now, Canadians are getting kind of ready. Uh, I know most of the time we say no, but yeah, people always complain about the polls, low turnout at the polls until they want change. All right, we uh, certainly know uh, the renewed interest in taking off to the moon and then beyond. SpaceX and NASA heavily involved. uh, Just tested a giant rocket not too long ago. Uh, They got four minutes up into space before uh, unfortunately uh, they had to detonate it as it was running off course. Uh, The Tokyo-based company iSpace aimed at being the first private company private company to land on the moon but had some difficulty today. Almost got there uh, but it appears now that they have lost contact with their craft let's bring in Paul Delaney professor of astronomy York University with us now Paul thank you for the time hope you're well
4: and indeed Scott always great to chat with you
2: so uh last we heard they were they had communication and then it stopped and then we didn't really know what happened can you give us any kind of update as where we are right now with this
4: well I am on their website and nothing really has changed in the last two hours which is not a good sign but We may not have lost the vehicle yet. Certainly, the approach to the touchdown looked pretty well flawless. It was really slowing down nicely. There was real-time telemetry. From what we could see on their website, they touched down at almost zero kilometers an hour. But unfortunately, the spacecraft didn't sort of radio back saying, I'm here, and it's been radio silence ever since. So that's not a good indication of health.
2: So it doesn't necessarily, or does it mean that it it, it crashed or it's, it's damaged in some way? They have just lost contact?
4: Well, the, the most charitable thing we can say is that they've lost contact. Certainly, as I said, the appearance is a successful touchdown. Now, in the process of touching down, uh, did, the, did the spacecraft sort of uh, execute a little bit of a shake, rattle, and roll on no. impact, and that's upset the computer system? We've all had problems with computer systems and need to reboot. Uh, maybe it's as simple as that maybe the antenna has been dislodged uh, maybe they landed on a stone and the angle of the spacecraft is unexpected and that's put it into sort of a saving mode. there are all sorts of possibilities that i am sure the iSpace team is working through but everybody was expecting a transmission upon successful landing that has not come so we're in a bit of a wait and see but nothing has come out that says the spacecraft has been lost so until they declare that boat springs eternal scott
2: would there and then i that's completely understandable i mean this has happened before and like you said the old control alt delete and who knows what happens <laughs> exactly um, <laughs> that being said how much time is dedicated to this is there any confirmation when they finally say it is over or what have you is there a time limit here
4: my bet is that they will continue every possible, sorry, they'll continue to explore every possible option over the next 10 days. That's how much time the sun is going to be above up, up the local horizon. This spacecraft, the KUTO-R, is a solar powered vehicle. So once the sun sets, on its landing site, that will be that. There'll be no more power. Uh, And that's 10 days from now. So my bet is that they will continue doing everything possible, uh, everything conceivable, and then a few things that are not conceivable to try and reestablish contact. That may happen tomorrow, but if it does not, you can bet they will continue until the absolute last possible minute. NASA, I'm sure, will send over one of their spacecraft uh, to try and image the landing site and determine whether or not the spacecraft is intact but all of that
2: does take time is there cooperation with nasa on this
4: oh yeah nasa is watching this mission because they are they've already given them a uh contract for part of uh, their uh, their lunar uh, commercial space projects uh, for i think it's either the third mission or the fourth I can't quite remember which but nasa is reaching out to the private sector as we both know for a variety of things and to be able to deploy landers across the moon's surface to accomplish a variety of scientific endeavors as well as technological endeavors without NASA having to foot a big bill. They're interested in that. So yes, NASA is very interested. Other groups, by the way, there are a couple of Canadian payloads on board this vehicle. The United Arab Emirates is on board this vehicle. Commercial activities on the lunar surface are ramping up
2: just as they are in low Earth orbit. So what can you tell us about iSpace? Is this similar to SpaceX?
4: there are similarities I guess they are not a launching uh, company unlike SpaceX they were formed in 2010 so they're about 13 years old but their main motivation at this point in time is to be able to develop the commercial opportunities on the lunar surface so instead of going into an out of Earth orbit which is with the bread and butter of SpaceX these days with Falcon 9 and as we know the development of Starship this organization ISPACE is dedicated to the long term exploration and the commercialization of the lunar surface so yes they're a private startup company they are reaching out for partners around the world governments and private industry alike but they're not a launching group so they're a bit different to SpaceX but they have a similar goal in that they are taking a niche area of space development and they're trying to be the forerunner and the lead the lead hand in it if you will.
2: That sort of answers my next question, Paul. So what was the objective of this specific flight for them?
4: Well, in many ways, it was a bit of a test mission, so a little bit like sort of super heavy and Starship was last week. They've never flown to the moon, so this was an engineering exercise as much as anything else. They certainly wanted to successfully land. They certainly wanted to deploy their payloads, but I think they will be delighted to have gotten to the lunar surface somewhat intact, even if not perfectly intact, that will have tested all of their operational systems that get from Earth and they launched last December. So they've been in space for the better part of six months. And as I said earlier, it looks as if they did touch down. It's just that we seem to have lost contact. They did not appear to have crashed. So they'll take a lot of satisfaction from that, roll their experience once they finish this next 10 days into the second mission, which is already under development already in production and that will fly to the moon next year
2: the tokyo-based company ispace uh landed it looks like on the moon but then have lost contact but stay tuned it's not quite uh we're not quite at the conclusion yet paul delaney with us professor of astronomy york university paul as always thanks for the time be well you bet take care scott
0: you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right, you watched the game last night. Unbelievable overtime win uh, for the Leafs. They go on to lead the series over Tampa Bay 3-1. Ooh, it is getting exciting. Uh, and, you know, my, uh, my son and I were joking last night. The great thing about this uh, stage of the playoffs is there's virtually hockey every single night. You know, there's something to watch somewhere. Uh, and now we're also making jokes about the gambling commercials because because they so outnumber every other ad or uh, integration into the actual event itself. So it's, you know, where's the lion? Where's the Gretzky and make, uh, Connor McDavid uh, racing the Zambonis? Where's the? Blah, 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 blah. And you know, um, we all know that this became legal in Ontario a little while ago. And one of the main reasons was, and this being online betting sites, is that everybody who was into this was just going to the U.S. anyway and doing it. So people were saying, well, why not get you know the lottery gaming corporation involved in this and do it locally? And I get that. I'm not a prude. I'm not a big gambler. I'm way too cheap. Um, but I, I certainly understand this, and I, I have no problem with uh, sites. I have no problem with, their, with them advertising on any events that they want to advertise, just like Coke and Pepsi and Ford and Chevy and KFC and McDonald's and the rest of them. What I really have a problem with is when the hosts or the people involved in the show or the event or the sport or whatever are being engaged in, you know, some sort of betting activity, some sort of odds making, some sort of whatever. So we're not showing highlights of what the team's done to prepare or the last game or whatever. We're talking about the odds of certain players. And they're actually bringing the commentators on to ask them their opinion of certain players to kind of base this all on and again no problem you want to buy an ad next to coke and pepsi go nuts but to actually have the host you know endorsing or talking about the product during the broadcast to me is just nuts what other industry does that you don't see ron McLean breaking out a bucket of chicken and saying hey boys what do you think of this because that's basically what we're doing here. Uh, has the gaming industry bit off a little bit more than uh, it can chew? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor to Group School of Business, McMaster University, and with us now, Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Booyah, Scott. Booyah. (laughs) So what are your thoughts on this, Marvin? I mean, we know that there's product integration, and you you may see a a thing of Coke sitting on the judge's table, uh, dancing with the stars or whatever. That's one thing. But what are your thoughts about having the actual gaming industry interwound within the actual programming and part of the show with the hosts? Right.
5: Right. So if you don't mind, can I just go back and then we'll go forward? Just to put this in some context, it was only two years ago, it was only two years ago that the Ontario Lottery and Gaming uh, Commission said, you could start betting on individual games. And initially, the only way to do that was through ProLine. In fact, that version was called ProLine Plus. It was actually just one year ago that they allowed these sports bets books uh, to join online and that you can start betting. So it's only been a year that this has been allowed through these various different sports booking groups. To give you a sense of it, uh, 420 was last week. The legal cannabis industry in Canada, a $4.5 billion industry. The alcohol industry in Canada, a $26 billion a year industry. In just Ontario, the online sports betting industry has taken in, in just one year, $16 billion. So it's a gigantic industry. People are betting with their dollars. Now, you're absolutely right. One way they could promote is simply to buy ads. The problem is people are so sophisticated that when the ads come on, that's when they get up and go to the bathroom or they change channels or what have you. So they've gotten even more insidious and you're absolutely right. They now sponsor things within the broadcast themselves. Now, this has been going on for some time. You may not have noticed it, but it's the Tim Hortons three stars of the game, or it's the, you know, sonnet insurance uh, play of the game. And so they've, they've already, different companies have been doing this for some time and the sports book, people say, okay, we'll help sponsor your shows. So if I'm the CBC or CTV or TSN, whoever, I get some revenue for this, but I want your host to talk about some of the odds. And in doing that, by the way, I want you to help educate these fans. So they are more likely to bet. In other words, if I told you the Maple Leafs were plus 150 favorites over the Tampa Bay Lightning, I think you'd probably say, I don't know what that means. So if I can get the host to talk about this on uh, in their broadcast and sort of educate people, it's going to make it so that even more people as we enter the second year, it's only been one year, as we enter the second year, we'll get more people to do it. Now, should it happen? I could argue that this whole world is the wild, wild west. When the Ontario Lottery and gaming people sanctioned this, I don't think they necessarily knew what they were opening with Pandora's box here. And I suspect if this gets to be too much, they'll come in and say, look, you can go this far, but you can't go that far. But at the moment, these companies have sorted this all out and have found insidious ways to work it in. I'm waiting for the elementary and secondary schools to start teaching sports betting as part of the curriculum.
2: Yeah, help the math. Um, You know, again, I have no problem with the banners or this brought to you by whoever. And and again, knock yourself out, whatever your betting company is. But teaching us how to do it. We're not teaching people how to make pizza. We're not teaching them how to change the oil in their car. We're not teaching them how to drill a hole with Home Depot. Uh, No other industry is doing this, yet for some reason we feel we need lessons in gambling. And we need the host to do that. Again, product placement is one thing. To me, this goes well, beyond product placement.
5: Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And generally, I would agree. However, uh, if you do the specialty cable channels, there's a channel I think called the Home and Garden Network, and they often have shows in which people are doing home renovations or gardening work, what have you. And again, companies that produce, whether it's fertilizers or tools, uh, help sponsor those shows, again, to help educate people. You know, it's not that hard to set tile or it's Not that hard to install a a new bathtub. Here, let us show you how. So this has been going on. Baking shows have showed you how to do this. So we've been doing it. Now, I think the difference is the size of the industry. These online gaming companies are huge companies, big brands behind them, and big dollars behind them. And so it's one thing, you know, if I live in an apartment, I'm not about to start gardening so I can let those commercials and those information wash over me. But because sports betting can really be done by anyone, anywhere, at any time, I think it is more insidious and probably needs the government to take a little sharper look at it.
2: What difference would it be if Ron McLean was teaching us all how to make a great uh, espresso martini or roll a joint or something? I mean, is this not the same thing?
5: In a way, it absolutely is. And uh, I think... What you're saying is that people would probably react differently if Ron McLean was showing you how to roll a joint than he is if he's saying, well, this player is up 600 or this one's down 150, and uh, look at the odds for Tampa Bay. Uh, somehow this is seen as acceptable. I think it's because so many people are doing it. I, I'm absolutely flummoxed to see the size of the sport bang industry like you. I'm too cheap to to bet on these sorts of things because I also know the odds. And I also know the odds are in only one person's favor. That's the house. I said a moment ago that uh, $16 billion on sports betting of that 95% or so goes back to the people who do the betting, but the house takes their 5% off the top and that's what they're making their money on. And if they can increase the volume of betting, of course they're, profits go up accordingly. So to them, uh, the more people who understand it, the better it is. And oddly, most consumers seem to buy into it.
2: Uh, all right. Uh, Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the group school of business, McMaster University. Buying ads for gaming sites, one thing, but do we need how to get a, tut- do we need a tutorial during the actual broadcast? Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is
0: Hamilton. Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News today's talk 900 criminal
2: all right, Hamilton's public school board will no longer be naming schools after notable figures. Uh, they've uh, done some col- a consult a consulta- a consultation and recommended that the executive stop naming learning facilities after people and stick to locations, landmarks, and natural features. To talk more about all of this, Maria Felix Miller is with us, vice chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board and trustee for Ward 3 and with us now. Maria, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
6: I hope you're well too.
2: Thank you for having me. All right, Maria. There's been a lot of chatter on, uh, certainly on this show, about this. The first question is, why are we doing this? Why, why, why not teach about something rather than uh, cancel something? Why, why the changes?
6: Uh, so this change actually uh, dates back to our previous board. So there was a motion in June 2021 um, that uh, initiated a lot of this work in the spirit of truth and reconciliation. Uh, Trustees Galindo and Trustee Bingham, who were former members of the board, um, put a motion forward to consider our school naming approach, um, our various approaches, the legacies that some of our schools carry when they have the names of individuals who have a complicated history history uh, for many Canadians and many Indigenous people
2: so i'll ask again why uh, why would we why would we change names why you know and and i guess if there's certain issues around current names whether it's ryerson or johnny mcdonald or or or, or one thing um but even future names I, I still don't understand why we are doing this why not just debate each one specifically if it fits it fits if it doesn't it doesn't why say no we're not going to do this anymore
6: uh, sure. So actually, um, during the process of developing um, this Indigenous-informed policy, we actually sent this out in the spring, and we opened it up to all HWDSB community members. We specifically asked staff to ask in our survey uh, whether or not folks felt um, inclined to keep that process of using individuals' names as a possible name for a school or a part of a school, and actually two-thirds of survey respondents um, came back and said, no, we would actually like to move away from this approach. It is something that has come up every time you name a school. Um, so there was one perspective that some of, obviously some of the names that we have and, and the name that kicked it all off was uh, Ryerson Elementary School, Egerton Ryerson, who was the architect of the residential school system here in Canada. Um, that school has now been renamed to the Neskere. And, um, So that's one component of it. But the other side of it is even for modern names and modern individuals who we do find inspiring and our leaders and our examples that we would want for our students, even that naming process uh, has the potential for controversy, has the p- potential for picking one individual over another. Um, it has the, the potential to offend uh, when there are still living members of that family that we have to um, you know, ask for permission to use that name. It's actually not um, such a neat and tidy process that I think some of the people who want to retain individual names make it out to be. It has a lot of burden associated with it and i think that we as trustees know that you know our histories are fluid uh they have the potential to change what we think now is a great uh name in 10 years might not feel so great uh so instead of continuing to um you know pick one individual over another we're trying to take a different approach and we're trying to be really creative with it so we are actually going to be as part of this new policy a um, model is actually going to be very consensus uh, driven very community uh, driven it will give ample uh, room for community consultation and community voice to come together and trustees will actually recognize that the consensus model means that likely there will actually be more work done by the school naming committee um, And and we're we're open to recognizing that and to honoring the the recommended choices. Um, But ultimately, we just feel that the individuals as a category um, have more potential for clouding or for complicating things uh, than other possible options.
2: My first reaction, Maria, with all due respect, is so what? I mean, that's what life's about. It's about debate. That's what education is about. Uh, you know, Absolutely. though, hang on a sec, hang on yeah. a sec. So because those who responded to a survey that you requested, which would be people who would be most interested in the issue, because mm-hmm. p- those people responded in, in a majority way, the name, has the, the, the decision has been made. Do you think this is an accurate representation of Hamiltonians? And again, why not go through all this process with each name? And you just talked about the burden, but you said there's more burden to do this. So, again, I just don't understand why you're doing this. It just, it just seems to, more sense to educate people on what is going on and why we got where we got rather than just erasing it and pretending it never happened.
6: Uh, No, so that's not at all what's happening, and it won't. This new policy won't trigger an immediate change of any school that has an individual's name. Um, Staff will now be undertaking the process of looking at all of our school names and um, seeing whether they have problematic history, seeing whether they cause harm, seeing whether they're not. Uh, perhaps the people that we we would choose today, some of the more recent choices, uh, so Bernie Custis comes to mind, Viola Guzman, Shannon Cashin. Those schools would likely retain their name and staff. Would what if to
2: something, not, you know, Maria? Know Maria, we're started. short. Of, we're short of time here, Maria. But what if those names that are you know the two names you just send, you just recommended, they couldn't be recommended again? So what's the harm in that? Because under but this thing, it. even names they like those would, wouldn't be allowed either. I mean, you're not going to take them away. But the yeah, fact that absolutely. you're spending resources, the fact that you're spending board resources to go back and look at names uh, and, and things like the Bernie Custis or what you just said, Viola Desmond, don't they wouldn't even be a new school. So where's the harm in naming those schools after them?
6: So we've just learned and we've learned that uh, even within the best of our abilities, with the best of our intentions, uh, individuals always carry uh, complexities to them. And we're, you know what, we're actually trying to look ahead into the future and reduce the amount of work for future boards. We are trying to prevent another uh, instance where we have to go back and rename and uh, start over with a school. So instead of focusing on all of the different individuals that you won't be able to use, uh, for a school, let's focus on all the opportunities we have to select another word, another perhaps another location, perhaps another uh, you know symbol of a history that speaks to our whole HWDSB community. Can, uh, again, common, Maria, local, again
2: Maria, we're we're short of time here. We know the, we know the basic reasons for this. So, can you give us some ideas of locations, landmarks, natural features, what we would be naming schools in the future?
6: Yes, yeah, so Genescar is a, a fantastic example. It's a Mohawk word that means bay and uh, it was selected for, you know, a lower city school that is bought very near to uh, the Hamilton Bay area. So it's a beautiful So is everything area, all
2: right? centered around indigenous names?
6: Not necessarily. Not necessarily. So can you
2: give me another Indian. example? Can you give me another example?
6: Well, we we've, we've just begun to undertake this. So we approved this policy Last night. So uh, you've approved the policy
2: with only one example of a name, that being Mohawk?
6: Yep. And actually, I, 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 to be honest with you, I find it disingenuous that you are focusing on simply one line of a very complex policy. There are pages and pages and pages. I just to want to policy. know what the
2: schools are going to be called in the future, Maria. That's all we're we trying to figure know. out is they're going
6: to be, They're going to be based on what the community wants they're going to be made through a consent. Has the
2: community panel. not spoken up about what they want and given you examples before you've made this decision? Um,
6: so actually each individual school, whenever we go to name a new school or part of a school, we begin to have a school naming committee. I cannot predict what uh, a school community is going to want to name a new school three years from now because that, com- that committee doesn't exist. Every single school naming committee will be made at the time and will involve the people, the stakeholders who are connected to that community and their voice is what we're going to be centering and uplifting.
2: All right. It'd be nice to have an example, Maria. Uh, Maria Felix Miller with his vice chair. Well, that was one. That's one example, Maria. Uh, Good luck. Good luck. I think you've opened up a bigger can of worms than you're trying to seal here. Vice chair of the Hamilton-Elbert District School Board, trustee for Ward 3. Thank you very much, Maria Felix Miller. All right. Uh, We certainly know the fallout, or we're starting to hear more of the fallout of those leaked Pentagon papers of a few weeks ago, which entangled the Prime Minister uh, of Canada, Pierre, or sorry, Pierre. I'm looking up residential schools. That's why that name came up. Uh, Justin Trudeau uh, secretly came out in those uh, leaked uh, Pentagon papers that uh, the Washington Post has revealed that um, the prime minister had secretly told uh, NATO NATO officials that we will never meet our goals, which is something that he doesn't say to the Canadian public. However, when he was asked about it the next day, he did not deny it. Uh, Where is this going moving forward? And we certainly know a lot about our climate change goals, which has never been met. you got to wonder if um, the prime minister is secretly talking behind closed doors that we will never meet our NATO targets. Will we ever meet our climate change targets? And is this the sort of thing you say outside of your own walls? Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks. So your thoughts of the fallout on this, and, y- you know, many are coming to the d- the the defense of the Prime Minister and saying, well, you know, NATO, an uh, in incorrect way to evaluate whether we're giving or we're not giving uh, from gross domestic product and such, 2%, what have you. But I think really the center of all of this is how much of a priority is the military, and uh, it obviously needs an awful lot of help. What are your thoughts of these comments?
7: Well, I think I think they're very truthful. <laughs> actually, I mean, I do think the you know the I, I never saw the the liberals uh, in, in recent times really want to to meet these targets, uh, especially you know the commitments to uh, NATO uh, for, for various reasons. Uh, one is which it's a very low priority for the Canadian public. There's some people who are interested in it, but it doesn't really de- you know um, sway people's votes. Uh, You know, the people who want more money to be spent on it, for the most part, will never vote liberal anyways, because traditionally the liberals have never been big on uh, defense spending. And uh, also, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people who look at that and they say, you know, how much we'd have to spend on it. And they say, well, I'd rather have things spent on things that I think are important, you know, things that are going to affect my daily life and uh so that that's a, you know that that goes in his favor and also one thing that may which is a bit surprising to me um uh, and i think again uh helps uh, trudeau here is that there they're, although uh, canadians probably have a lot of sympathy for uh uh the ukraine and having uh having us help them out which is which is why i think the nato wants everybody to be pe- spending enough money on their defense so they can help out U- ukraine over the next little while uh the army there they uh, there's a lot of people who inc- who increasingly saying i'm not so sure we should be spending all this money and helping out the ukraine uh, on this war and uh, you know sentiment for, for a lot of these people, is that really, at some point, the Ukraine, you know, government has to essentially make a deal with the Russians that uh, they'll never, they'll never really be able to pull out the you know push out the russian
2: so wait a second henry we're never going to spend a lot on our military so you should just make a deal i mean <laughs> come on henry
7: no um well i mean that, that's the thought of the public
2: i'm yeah. saying, this is how the public let seems. me ask you this henry has that change has that view changed especially since they're floating balloons over the arctic since uh the russian invasion of ukraine uh and again i think this might have surprised people to hear the prime minister say this is this attitude changing
7: I, I haven't seen it. I mean, I'm I'm looking at the public opinion polls that I've know and watching, and I don't I don't see there's any change in this. The people people basically, I think in Canada, this is a low, you know, a lo, a low priority area. Uh, you know, to some people, it may be a lot. Uh, I mean, the only place that would really make a big uh, a big impact on the liberals are on is uh, is on the uh, Atlantic provinces because the population there has traditionally been very much uh, uh, in favor of uh, support for the military. Uh, but other than that, when we when we leave when we leave the Atlantic provinces. Most of the rest of the population not, doesn't really care all that much about about the military, and they're quite happy that we uh, we don't uh, you know go and and meet our you know our what we what we're supposed to be doing because they don't want to spend the money on that.
2: Let me ask you this, Henry: We bloated the uh, civil service, public service, since the prime minister took office by 30 yeah. percent. Why not have that same sort of attitude towards the military? And again, have we forgot that the military? is a great avenue to educate Canadians. It's a great avenue to create careers as well as security and hit all these targets. It's great to write a blank check to Ukraine, but why not spend it on your military and then send them? Uh, have we forgotten what the military is about? I, I think I think
7: it is. Yeah, I, I basically think it's not top of mind for the Canadian public. You're right. There's a lot of good things that the military does, and you're right, training uh, and And skill development for people who, even after they leave the military, are very useful in the domestic uh, you know um, economy, I agree with you entirely on that but it 's it 's just that it doesn 't you know is not really top of mind to to the to the public. If I mean, if I were you know, if I want, do you think to, bloating the
2: public service by thirty percent is top of mind for the Canadian? No, public? Well, I mean, they yeah, I mean, they don't want that
7: as well. But to, uh, essentially, they look at what part what pub, what tar, part of the public service does what, and if it, if the p- part of the public service is helping them out uh, on certain things, then fine. But I think if it's, it's I just think a lot of the public. Mm. Especially the people who are likely liberal voters really don't see that it, uh, that it's a good uh, you know expenditure from their point of view. They just not soon, uh, soon um, have any to do anything with this. It's uh, you know it, there's an age factor in here. The uh, liberal vote is relatively young, and the younger you uh, younger population essentially wants money spent on other things, including climate. <laughs> you know, I think let me ask you like that, Henry.
2: Let me ask you that, Henry, because none of those targets have been none of those targets have been hit either. Do you think Canadians care about that?
7: They do. They do. The liberal voters and I think Canadians do, especially the, the liber, likely liberal voters. And he's and I do think the, the, the government has, has to show that it's meeting, you know, it's very serious and meeting targets there because that's their, where their vote is. You know, they that's what they want want to see is they want something to be done by the uh, on the environment and and global change. You know, whether Unfortunately,
2: change. Henry, we are a plum out of time. Henry okay. Jasic with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Uh, we continue on this conversation.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right. I guess no surprise here. We knew it was coming. But U.S. President Joe Biden has announced he will run for president again in 2024, uh, defending his title, finishing the job, as they say. I remember way back when many thought that he wouldn't finish the current term and that the vice president would take over uh, before we even got to this point. What happened there? Uh, Let's bring in Brian J. Karam, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com com in the Washington Diplomat and host of Just Ask the Question podcast, author of the book, Free the Press, the Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, with us now, Brian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well
1: doing well. Looking forward to the trivia game. Oh, wait a minute. That's
2: something else, right? (laughs) So uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, Is America happy? Is America happy with Joe?
1: Um, Well, America, according to recent polls, uh, are very happy with Joe. President Biden, 71% uh, say they would be voting for him again. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, there are many who don't want him to run, and that includes a majority of Democrats who believe that he's too old and that Donald Trump is too old. And we got a bunch of old geezers running our country, and we'd like to have some young geezers running our country. So it's uh, it's a mixed bag at this point. I personally don't think that he's running uh, because he wants to. I think he's running because he thinks he has to because of the threat that Donald Trump Still presents uh, to the country.
2: I remember way back when, when uh, he was elected first time, many thought, "Wow, he's not going to finish this uh, term out. He's going to hand things over to the VP." Are you surprised to see him not only finish this term, not do that, but then try for another?
1: Well, uh, I mean, we still got a year and a half left in this term, and look, uh, let's be honest, the actuary tables aren't aren't uh, good for either Donald Trump or for President Biden. I mean, with the average age in the United States of most male men being 73 years. Donald Trump is beyond that. So is, um, so is president Biden. So um, it's, I I still, I tell you it's a year and a half away this, this election. And everybody Mm -hmm. who says we ought to just shut up and listen, it's going to be, you know, Biden versus Trump. I'm, you know, let's wait and see. It's still a year and a half long way to go. Uh, declaring now does clear out the the underbrush and make sure that the big donors are behind Biden, which is what he has to do if he's going to go after Trump. Trump has certainly cleared out the underbrush. His closest competitor hasn't even declared yet, and that's Ron DeSantis down in Florida, and he keeps slipping in the polls because Ron DeSantis, of course, has all the appeal of roadkill. So (laughs) it's going to be an interesting year and a half. Is
2: there an advantage to declaring now?
1: Yeah, money. That's what it, like I said, you just clear out the underbrush and make sure that the donors are lined up, know who you are and and get going. That's what Trump did. But look, man, you got to be, let's look at it honestly. Not only is it the age of both of these uh, candidates, but Donald Trump is facing some serious, serious problems in court. And if he gets to the point where his uh, candidacy is not viable, he could drop out. And at that point in time, That's when I would look to see whether or not Biden says, look, enough's enough, I'm out. Um, And then, of course, like I said, uh, the next year and a half could take its toll on all of us. So it's a day by day, more than any other election I've covered in my lifetime. This one is going to be up in the air until the very end.
2: So um, if Donald Trump uh, not in the picture, you think that uh, Joe Biden could bow out?
1: Mm hmm. What about
2: the. Uh, Obviously, we've talked about in the past, Republicans waiting in the wings. I've I've said to you, is there not some bright, young uh, man or woman in the Republican Party that can take this party in another direction? But I guess you can say the same thing for the Democrats. Yes. Again, are they doing anything to push the next
1: candidate forward?
2: The next generation?
1: I I think there's uh, the the closest. First of all, you said young, bright. Well, that precludes everyone in the Republican party and most people in the democratic party. Um, So I don't know that there's a young bright anywhere, but I also think we're seeing that we may be seeing, we're definitely seeing the death of the Republican party. We may be seeing the death of the democratic party, but without a doubt, the Republican party has no one in the wings that has a cross cultural appeal. The Democrats do, they try to push Gavin Newsom. There was a, a piece done on MSNBC to, to bolster his um, approval ratings and to give him a higher profile. But I don't think he's the guy. I think you have to go to a governor somewhere like in Kentucky, uh, uh, Andy Bashir, who is in a red state, but has done very well for his state. Uh, someone like that, a Democrat in a red state could possibly win, but we have to wait and see. It's like I said, really all up in the air and both parties and you've got uh, two septagenarians. One's going to be an octogenarian running for president. If you don't have better ideas than that, we're all in trouble. We have two parties. One has no par- heart and one has no head.
2: <laughs> uh, recent changes, high-profile changes at Fox and CNN with Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon. Is this going to change the complexion in any way of a campaign moving forward in the next year and a half?
1: Well, certainly will change the complexion of Fox. I mean – there are 787 million reasons why Fox has to change its its tune and that's you know 787 million dollars a record uh, of, of, of amount of money being spent because they lost a, a um, defamation suit. So yeah, Fox will change, but overall will it change much? No. It'll just have someone that'll, I mean, basically, Tucker Carlson has taken the fall for Fox, as did Dan Oingo Boingo or Bon Gino or whatever his name is, the other guy that got canned. Um, those guys are going to take it on the chin, but Fox will still be Fox. So I don't see much change overall. I could be wrong, but we'll wait and see. As far as Don Lemon leaving CNN, people who think that's pointing to a change at CNN, I think it's just pointing to a a change to get rid of Don Lemon and that Don had uh, certainly engendered a lot of uh, animosity over the last year, and so it's just they want to move on past him. I don't see much change in either one of those two places, just the change of face.
2: Uh, rumor or, or ideas floating around that Tucker Carlson could enter politics, is that just a bad joke?
1: Well, he's always been a bad joke. I guess that would just be a, a round, another bad joke. <laughs> I also heard that he's, you know, that uh, – the uh, uh, Russian state media would like to hire him. That's, you know, so we'll wait and see. Um, I don't know what happens to Tucker Carlson. He's been fired from every major network in the United States. And uh, God only knows where he'll end up next. Is this a blow for Donald Trump? Yeah, of course it is. Uh, But Donald Trump has worse things to worry about than whether or not Tucker Carlson is around to to kiss his bulbous bottom. Donald Trump is, uh, we've been told Look, uh, they put us on alert down in Georgia that the indictments are coming down in July. So, I I mean, they're saying they're going to announce what they've found. Well, you don't do that unless you're preparing people for indictments. And Donald Trump and many of his minions may be facing additional charges come July or June down in Georgia. After that, you've got to look at the uh, Mar-a-Lago federal investigation and finally the January 6th. That's why I'm not really sure anyone who thinks that Donald Trump is a lock for the Republican um, nomination it really hasn't been paying much attention by the time we get to the nomination Donald Trump could be so buried in court I mean right now there's a a you know a civil suit for rape going on against Donald Trump and that's that's got to take up his time. I don't know that he's going to have time to run for office. He's going to be running from the authorities. Brian
2: J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, white house reporter columnist for salon.com and the Washington diplomat. Always fun, Brian. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, brother. Have fun with the trivia. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer.
0: He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
6: All
2: right, we were chatting earlier uh, with the vice chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board talking about uh, the vote last night in which uh, they decided they would no longer name schools after people and as well go back and look at the ones that already were, whether it's Bernie Custis or uh, Viola Desmond, and uh, remove them i don't know let's bring in larry Diani, former mayor of uh, the city of hamilton and former principal uh, at uh, oakville trafalgar high school and with us now larry thanks for the time i hope you're well
8: i'm very well scott the former principal of the uh, oakville trafalgar high school and, and a number of other high schools as well they uh, rotate us around once in a while
2: there you go uh so your thoughts on where the hamilton Wetworth district school board is with saying that's it no more names for schools
8: right so i mean i understand the issue and then they're sort of caught in um in the horns of a of a a bit of a dilemma because you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't and the history here is that there are some people that are upset with the existing names uh Uh, who have been found out that hundreds of years ago, in some cases, uh, maybe um, uh, behaved in ways that we today, with our new moral standards, um, don't favor. Um, And I'm talking about, you know, uh, the history of residential schools and so on. Mm -hmm. I also understand that the Truth and Reconciliation Committee did make some uh, suggestions um, in terms of trying to get us over the hump and, and create a more harmonious society in which our history is understood a little better, and and we do, in honest ways, try to make some reparations where possible. Uh, so I get all that. I, I, I get all that, that they're trying to make things better, and I think these are people of good faith and, uh, and want to do things in a way that's better. But I also feel, and I think a lot of people feel, that um, we, we may be, we may not be making things better. You're just replacing one group of unhappy people with another group of unhappy people. And, and some who were unhappy and now maybe a little happier um, feel somewhat vindicated. Uh, But the fact of the matter is that when you look at the bird's eye view of society, you still have an unhappy society and maybe even a little more resentful society. And so is is there a better way of trying to achieve some social harmony and and come to terms with our history that doesn't necessarily automatically have us judge today people who lived 100 years ago and were using whatever standards they had that good, bad, and indifferent in ways that they felt were were, um, doing what society needed to be done in order to fix it? So I think we can, pass, we can certainly pass judgments on that and have opinions on that, but to sort of erase their whole history based on some standard that yet uh, uh, that that didn't exist way back then, I think is unfortunate.
2: And I think we. And I think in trying to blame someone to make us all feel better, uh, they're concentrating on certain leaders as opposed to the society who voted for them <laughs> and supported all of this. I mean, it looks like we're looking for a poster whipping boy, but we're not willing to take responsibility for their... It's not my fault. It was Ryerson's fault. It's not my fault. Not my ancestors' fault. It was Trudeau's fault. It's not. And and it seems that we're shoving off the responsibility by blaming by blaming these few people as as if the rest of Canada. had no say in it whatsoever.
8: Well, and and I I mean, I take your point. And what I would say is, you know, to your first point, that that uh, makes us feel better by by reacting in a certain way. If it made us feel better as a society, I'd say, okay, maybe it's worth it's worth doing. But the fact of the matter is, it's not making us feel better. The fact that, you know, we've had this conversation over and over again and, and people react to it. Over and over again means that it's not it's not making things better. It may be simply making things um, better for some only and 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 not everybody. And I thought the whole purpose was to make things better for everybody. But there's got to be, I think, a better way um, of um, of uh, without without you know not recognizing everybody because everybody has made errors, I'm sure. And so if we name, you know, we just name. Um, uh, you mentioned Desmond and, and Custis as, as two schools that were just named recently. Um, Catholic schools name uh, schools after individuals, you know, Cardinal Newman, St. John Newman now, uh, and others, uh, who also, when you look at their history, maybe did something that someone doesn't agree with in terms of, in terms of their whole totality of history. And so if we're naming people today a hundred and we think it's good and and I think people supported the naming school at the Desmond and Custis there there were, they were uh, national and and local uh, personalities who did a lot of good but you know 25 years from now somebody might unearth something mm. that that makes us question and are we going to then change the whole structure again because of that i I guess my 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 point is is i'm struggling to to make some sense of it scott is that there's got to be a better way of healing society that makes
2: everybody feels positive and not just some it seems that we're missing an educational moment here larry we're missing a teaching moment why not teach rather than then cancel
8: well, and, and, you know, the, those, those who want to see statues come down or names change will tell you we can still teach. You don't have to have the name on a building in order to teach. You can still do that. But, but uh, I would say in response to that, if taking the name of, uh, uh, of Ryerson or knocking down the statue of Sir John A. MacDonald uh, makes you feel good, check out the pulse of everybody who's watching that happen and ask them their opinion and if the response is that they feel more aggrieved now that that's happened have we really done the right thing and the teachable moment might pass us by because we're now concentrating on the grievance of a different group rather than helping all groups understand the history better
2: Well said. Larry DeAnne with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton and former principal at many schools, teacher too. Uh, Larry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure, Scott.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right, a uh, great report out of Global News, and you can see this, Jeff uh, Semple will have more on this tonight. A recent report uh, from Global highlighting how Taiwan is educating its citizens to detect foreign influence and propaganda, Uh, while Canada still tries to figure out uh, which end of the pencil is up, it uh, it appears. Uh, Of course, this on the heels of us hearing that uh, uh, the United States is laying charges in regard to uh police stations uh police stations chinese communist party police stations monitoring those in the united states the way uh we are seeing things here however we seem to be a bit more slow when it comes to reacting to any of this let's bring in charles burton senior fellow center for advancing canada's interest abroad at the mcdonald laurier institute and here now charles thanks for the time hope you're
9: well I am, Scott. It's good to speak with you.
2: How volatile is Taiwan right now? I mean, it's to the point Jeff Semple's done a thing, uh, a report on how they are educating their citizens to detect foreign influence. It seems we should be doing that here, or at least for the politicians.
9: Yeah, I think it's uh, it's definitely uh, a rising thing in terms of the use of artificial intelligence, you know, deep fakes, and... and uh, the spread of the internet where you can't really tell what's a reliable source and what's a bot and what's you know some crazy guy in his basement and what's uh people's liberation army um, uh, disinformation team working out of shanghai doing i think you know it's uh, certainly in taiwan they're trying to to come up with a rapid response method whereby when false news does spread through the internet within a very limited time frame of i think 30 minutes they will issue a a correction that will tell you this is fake news and here's the truth of the matter i don't know how you know how effective that penetrates i mean the thing is that fake news uh, and disinformation is so much more interesting than than real news. I mean, I'm a very boring guy, mm. but you know, if news came out that I w- was involved in I don't know, sexual misconduct, <laughs> gambling and <laughs> drugs, you know, that would make me a lot more interesting to the average reader. And so, you know, I think we're more inclined to 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 be able to be manipulated by news that that is designed to to appeal to to, uh, you know, things that we might want to believe in. And I think artificial intelligence will make it easier and easier for hostile countries like Russia and China to target people with tailor-made disinformation that they're likely to believe and that will affect their political uh, choices.
2: We've recently heard the FBI laying charges in regard to uh, U.S. police stations supposedly being run in the U.S., rather being run by the Chinese Communist Party, very much like they are here to influence uh, Chinese Canadians or Chinese Americans in in their case. Um, Again, we've seen them move a lot quicker than we are. Does this speed us up in any way? Does this draw any more attention uh, to this? Will Taiwan getting ready draw more attention? to this?
9: Well, I think certainly, you know, it's I think very disappointing that Canada has not made any arrests with regard to these police stations. The uh, RCMP has assured us that they've parked police cruisers outside the addresses and that's, you know, discouraged the activity. But I, I don't know, I'm not a police expert, but it seems to me that if I was operating an illegal operation and there were police uh, parked outside, I would simply move my illegal operation elsewhere. So, You know, the U.S. have identified 40 people, uh, agents of the Chinese state operating out of one of these police stations. They're really, you know, venues for malign Chinese regime activity, not just police, and they're involved in menace and harassment of people that the Chinese government would like to to shut up and and involved in subtle programs of of bribery to try and get people in positions of influence like in the policy process politicians and so on to um, either keep quiet when they hear about Chinese malign activities or to actively support Chinese regime purposes so you know in Canada the big thing in these revelations that have come through the globe mail and global news of the documents that that ceases um, issued to the senior levels of government alleging very serious misconduct is that why did our government not act you know who got to them and convinced them that they should just put those serious documents in the back of a drawer and forget about them you know that. I think that's really what it's all about, and we should put a stop to it. But so far, no arrests, no Chinese diplomats sent home. The whole story seems to be fading and is only kept alive because other countries seem to be taking it more seriously than we are.
2: Uh, Interesting report last week regarding the University of Waterloo sending out a statement saying to their people, if CSIS comes and asks you questions, you don't have to talk to them. What kind of message does that send?
9: Well, you know, the universities are interested in creating knowledge and disseminating knowledge, you know, doing cool things in the lab and then writing about it in academic papers. And they want to collaborate freely around the world. The universities don't have a mandate for national security. And, of course, you know, these provisions the government has put in where um, government research funding is now vetted for national security purposes and ceases sniffing around to see if dual-use military technologies being developed in Canadian labs are being transferred over to China, who may use them in hostilities against us if things continue to hot up over Taiwan, you know, the universities regard this as a negative because it's inhibiting their ability to bring in funding from, say, Huawei or whatever, and it's inhibiting their ability to engage in exchange with what they regard as Chinese colleagues, but what I regard as agents of the Chinese state, um, you know, seeking... To get our high tech uh, on the cheap and to use it for purposes that we wish they wouldn't use it for, you know, like surveillance and and uh, and military purposes. So, you know, it's very disappointing that uh, the University of Waterloo is not issuing a document saying, "Please cooperate with CSIS. and You know and give them everything that you know so that so they can do their jobs properly and it's instead coming up with means for people to try and avoid being answerable to uh, agents of of our intelligence and security services who may have good reason to suspect that there's something wrong with some collaboration that those professors are engaged in and perhaps they should be informed that what they're doing is damaging to Canada's security and sovereignty.
2: Um, yeah, it, it, to me, it just makes it just creates more suspicion than anything. Uh, getting back to Taiwan, how far will Taiwan have to go before China reacts, before China steps in and it becomes another Hong Kong?
9: Well, I mean, I, I think certainly if if there was some sign for the Chinese that that they wouldn't be able to to continue to move towards a gradual annexation of Taiwan, you know, if Taiwan declared itself as an independent republic and applied for a seat on the UN, that would probably stimulate an immediate invasion. I think if, you know, if there's signs of weakening that the US really won't um, be coming into to to support Taiwan against uh, Chinese military action, you know, let's say there's a change in the next U.S. election, Donald Trump comes in and starts to suggest that, you know, the Taiwan situation doesn't have anything to do with the United States. Um, we could we could see Ch- Chinese military action. And I think if you know if the disinformation that China sends into Taiwan convinces the Taiwanese people that you know that that their that their place will be destroyed in case of war and they'd be better off negotiating annexation into into the mainland, that would also lead to to the end of democratic Taiwan and the end of of Taiwan as an independent political entity um, whose people are in charge of their own affairs. So you know all of these scenarios are. Pretty bad. And of course, if Taiwan goes, that will embolden China to start doing a lot more. And you know, we really we really should put a stop to it before before the loss of Taiwan, which would have enormous global implications.
2: Charles Burton with us, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald laurie Institute. Charles, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
9: Take care. Thank you
2: interesting article in the conversation it is penned by the professor of defense studies at Canadian Forces College Paul Mitchell and the headline is Justin Trudeau and NATO the problem with Canadian defense isn't cash it's culture uh, a recent open letter signed by 61 Canadian retired security professionals called on Canada to meet its commitment to NATO of 2% of GDP in defense spending quickly followed by the Washington Post revelation that Canada will never meet that target the on Going Discord security leak of classified files includes this admission by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to NATO officials. It illustrates the slow motion crisis in Canada's defense and security policy, the article says. And then it goes on to uh, list a couple of categories like culture concerns, as well as no real strategic thinking and complacent Canadians that really... Don't care too much about all of this. And to talk more, Dr. Paul T. Mitchell with us, Department of Defense Studies, Canadian Forces College, and with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
10: Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be with you this evening.
2: You bring up a valid point in it's the culture that needs to change. It seems that when we think of our military, we're just thinking of sending people somewhere to kill other people. Have we lost the value uh, or the knowledge of what the purpose of the military is really all about? Like I remember being a, a younger guy. I, I knew uh, friends or relatives that had uh, enlisted in the military in order to get an education. It was a career opportunity uh, for them over and above all of the security and and nato commitments and such talk a little bit about the culture now in canada around the military
10: so uh, really it's a great point um since the end of the cold war uh it's been a struggle i think for the canadian forces to really define what it's what it's actually for why do we have an army why do we have a navy why do we have an air force when in effect Canada's surrounded by three oceans and guarded our southern borders guarded by a superpower so what do we need that military for? Uh, and governments of all stripes have struggled with explaining that to to Canadians and leading them towards a, a, a rational strategy for having a military in the first place. I think there's lots of great reasons for having a military. Uh, in fact, there's way too many of them. Uh, and so we've uh, uh, the governments of, of both uh, political parties, conservatives as well as liberals, uh, have really shirked their responsibility uh, in explaining to Canadians what they, what it is they want to do with their military. Uh, and that just goes right back to that geographical problem of three oceans and a superpower. Um, it's those geographical things that really lead to a culture of complacency within Canada.
2: I can certainly understand that in the, the post-World War II era, the post-Cold War era. But obviously, uh, whether it was 9-11 and now with the situation and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, how can you say never?
10: So the, the trouble, again, is um, that, that there are actually way too many demands on on Canada Uh, for our military to adequately meet any of them. Uh, There are real uh, concerns with regards to European security because of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There are real concerns with the growing aggressiveness of China in the Indo-Pacific area and and obvious threats posed to Taiwan's independence and and its its, uh, burgeoning democracy. There are also threats uh, closer to home. Climate change in the Arctic is going to have significant impacts uh, on on that particular area, opening it up and actually making it more difficult to live up there for the people who who have sp- uh, you know the Inuit who have who've spent their entire uh, existence living in in an, a, an environment that is rapidly changing. And as we see with Haiti in the south in in the Caribbean, uh, political instability in that region. Uh, the United States has put significant pressure on Canada in the last six months to sign up for a mission, another mission in Haiti. Uh, our forces are really too small uh, to, to address all of these things all at once, and yet we're getting demands from all of these signals. Um, and on top of that, uh, you know they're just they're just uh, uh, there's there's no real rationale or priority setting by the government by any government, really, uh, in terms of what Canada should focus on uh, with its small military.
2: Um, and again, it seems that Canadians are, are certainly, um, and again, I, I think in a post-Russia invasion of Ukraine, it's, it's a different conversation now. Um, but if we increase the size of the military or the funding of the military... Would this not create jobs in some way? You know, we're, we're seeing a public sector service strike right now where uh, 30% of the public service is on strike and the, the public service is bloated by 30% since this prime minister uh, took power. You know, why not bloat the military while educating, creating careers, and, oh yeah, meeting these targets? Um, you know, it, it seems that the money's there for some things, but again, because of the culture, we don't see the value of... Of creating jobs or, or or a military uh that the only thing it's good for is destruction
10: I, I think you know job creation is an aspect of of uh defense policy uh the question is is whether jobs could be created more effectively by other forms of government intervention in our economy um and at the end of the day why we have a military is not to create public service jobs uh for people wearing uniforms. Uh, it is about to address uh, real strategic needs, real nas- national security ends, uh, and that's why we have a military. And in fact, job creation, and I would argue uh, the industrial benefits that come from a defense procurement, really are red herrings that are tossed out to a Canadian public that really doesn't care about why it is we have a military or why we're spending money on very, very expensive weapon systems, uh, but perhaps can be convinced uh to to support the expense because we are creating jobs or because we're creating industrial benefits at the end of the day the military has to do something uh has to rep you know address particular problems and that is the fundamental crisis that I argue that's affecting uh, uh Canadian defense policy right now. The world wants us to be all things to all regions, you know, illustrated by the four that I just uh, just spoke about: the Arctic, Europe, the Caribbean, uh, and the Indo-Pacific. But Canada can't do all of that stuff, uh, uh, even with our allies. We can't. We have to be focused on something, uh, and I think it, it really behooves uh, politicians in both parties to step up and explain what it is that they want to do with the military uh, and explain to Canadians. Uh, what it is that they will do with with a, a military that meets those two percent goals, or actually why we're not going to meet those two percent goals uh, because we're we're going to prioritize other uh, other other areas of government spending uh, over military spending.
2: Uh, in your article, you said it's a non-issue for Canadians; uh, they become complacent. Is that changing in a post-situation uh, with Russian invasion of Ukraine?
10: You know, I thought that that Ukraine might be a wake-up call for Canadians. Uh, There is a clear danger posed by Russia's actions. It's a world that will be governed by spheres of interest, not by the rule of law at the international level. Now, maybe that we can square that against as long as they don't, you know, I'm all right, Jack, keep your hands off my stack kind of attitude uh, that, that many people have in this country. Uh, Who cares about the Ukrainians? they are faraway people about which we know very little to quote Neville Chamberlain from the the, the beginning of the Second World War. Uh, But the kind of ramifications of a return to a sphere of interest basis for world power is one in which small and medium powered countries like Canada will be at tremendous risk and there will be war on the borders of those spheres of interest they always there always is and this is what history shows how how these kinds of systems uh work out so i had hoped that ukraine would be a wake up call for canadians to think about what it is that the kind of world that can, uh, uh, canada should should exist in and what they should support sadly uh it's turning out to be not so uh in fact if you look at the the news coverage for uh Trudeau's comments last week uh, on on uh, on NATO uh, aside from uh, one or two op-eds uh there actually aren't a lot of calls there aren't a lot of uh, news stories that are following up on this uh and and in fact I think it, it will it will be a couple of bad news days for the the liberal government. Uh, but this too shall fade uh, as as time progresses. So I really don't think that Ukraine has been has been a wake up call. What I think, sadly, a wake up call will be is a military disaster, such as what might happen to the forces that we've committed to Latvia, uh, which are even less than a speed bump, uh, even for a weakened Russian military. Uh, there's mm. not a lot of geography in, in, in Latvia, and there's not a big army it, like the Ukrainians had prior to that. Uh, a, a land grab for for mm. the Baltic states would be very, very dangerous to the, the, the troops that we have deployed in those regions.
2: Dr. Paul Mitchell with us, Department of Defense Studies, Canadian Forces College.
10: Uh, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for your, your the opportunity.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Joining us now, Scott Radley. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is coming up uh, after the six o'clock news. Uh, And yeah, he's here now. Scott, how are you today?
11: I'm great. And I love talking to you,
2: Scott. But I got to tell you, there is
11: something deeply wrong with interrupting Paradise by the dashboard lights.
2: Well, yeah, maybe I should have just thrown a pail of water on you or something like just a cold glass or something in the face. Maybe that would have done it. There should be no. Well, yeah, we'll leave it there. Yes, it's uh, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I was ch- uh, talking to the uh, uh, the chair, vice chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board today in regard to um, the name changing yes. and what had happened as a result of uh, last night's vote. And um, I, I found it fascinating because I asked why they did this. And they said, well, they surveyed a pile of people who are basically within the school who would have probably only jumped on this survey because <laughs> it is of importance to them. And then when I asked what some of the other options were going to be, as you mentioned the other night, they can only really come up with an indigenous uh, example. So, uh, again, no Bernie Custis, no Viola Desmond, no Chris Hadfield, Pierre Elliott Trudeau's names on at least a dozen schools in Canada. I I, I just I, I don't know what they're hoping to solve by this. It seems like they've created more of a problem, more divisiveness rather than using this as an educational teaching moment. That's what we said the other day, is what they're doing here is solving a
11: problem that is a rare problem. So they're, they're taking a wide swath. They're carpet bombing t- you know, everything to solve because, yes, occasionally there is a name that becomes problematic in some eyes later on. So let's just not ever allow for the possibility that that <laughs> could happen. And, yeah. and again, I mean, to me, that defeats so many purposes. We, we should be And I've, look, I've argued this, Scott, many times in writing and here at the station. We should be celebrating people from our community who do amazing things, be they white, black, indigenous, male, female, fully able, disabled, it doesn't matter. If you do something that separates you in such a way that we want our kids to look and say, that's someone from here that I could someday be like, that's someone that I aspire to be like. That to me, that's something we should aspire to do in this community. Rather than saying we are now going to have Pinecone Elementary and cl- Puffy Clouds Middle School and Elm Street, I, yeah. Well, I mean, come on, it's it's so it's Main Street Public it, School. It's so stupid. It's so stupid, and it's as I say, it's such a um, uh, an overreaction to try and make sure that nothing could possibly ever happen wrong ever if we were going to scott if we were going to use this Concept in a more broad term, we would not allow phys ed class in schools ever because somebody
2: could break a well, wrist. Really, we don't. When you think about it, well,
11: no, we do, but we <laughs> yeah. we, we we take steps. Yeah. But you know, we would never allow for um, I don't know, pick anything you want. Drama. We would never allow for a school play to happen because somebody could fall off the stage and hurt themselves, or someone's feelings could be hurt because they don't get to be the lead. Like, why why would you take this? broad swath to eliminate a whole host of possibilities for the one or two chances that something could maybe down the road go wrong.
2: I just fail
11: to see where the teachable moment is here. There isn't one. There isn't one. Unless you're going to say, well, look, we're bringing in all these indigenous names now. Well, well you could do that anyway. You could do that anyway. Plus, um, is there? Are, are we now taking the position... That only, that, uh, uh, this is not saying indigenous things can't be great, but that only indigenous things can be great. Yeah. That only indigenous things should and, be celebrated. And
2: everything colonial is bad. I mean, but, you know, but, Scott, it doesn't it's matter even, that we built where we got here, but you know. But
11: it's not even it's not even that it's colonial. I mean, like, again, uh, is, isn't Bernie Custis school colonial? Yeah, I agree. And that's just one example. As you said it before, Viola Desmond, or, it, you know, it, there are Terry Fox high schools or secondary schools all over this country should should now they're not as i understand it taking these names down they're just not doing anything they further. are going to review them though they're going to review them all okay so so but even if they if even if it wasn't reviewing even if it was simply not naming anymore if someone said we should really have terry fox secondary when we come up to the 50th anniversary in seven or eight years Are we going to say, you know, Terry Fox, uh, I don't know. He was a white guy. That's, you know, that's kind of problematic. I mean... We, he was we, an
2: '80s guy. Well, there's all a kinds, late '70s guy. There's
11: all kinds of things. What happens, you know? To we have now arenas in this city that are named after people: Pat Quinn, who won Olympic gold and is in the Hall of Fame; Dave Anderchuk, who won a Stanley Cup. A- again, expand this. Harry Howell. Do we not want to honor people who have done great things? That to me, all this does is lower the bar. So we must now strive for the lowest common denominator at all times. And never try and just say, sometimes it may blow up in our face, but we're still
2: going to honor the people who we celebrate as great. Where's the teaching moment? Uh, Scott Radley with us, host of The Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. See ya.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
2: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word.
8: So teacher, Miss Brown, was talking to her young students, uh,
2: grade five students,
8: about whales and that it is very large mammal with a small mouth, but it is a, isn't a threat to swallow the size of a human. Little Nancy raises her hand and asks, What about Jonah? He was swallowed by a whale. The teacher then looks with half an eye and says, Again, large mammal, small throat, no damage whatsoever to a human being. So Nancy says, Well... I guess I'll have to ask him when I get to heaven. And the teacher says, but what if he went to hell? And then she says, well, then you will have to ask him.
5: Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine Podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective.